All right. Every week they do a good job. If you don't know, uh, my kids, uh, Gray is the one in the red shirt that wants nothing to do with telling Bible stories at this point. So we're working on him. Okay, we're trying, we're trying our best. Uh, hey, I, it's so much fun to be up here teaching. I love this series. I love the idea based on a true story because uh, um, all my life I've loved really good stories. I've just loved it. And before I was out in Colorado, I was a youth pastor back in Kentucky, and uh, my students, they knew I loved really good stories. And so they were like, Jesse, uh, we know you love really good stories, and since you do, you got to read Harry Potter. And I was like, uh, Harry Potter is for children. They're kids' books, okay? They're lame. I'm, I'm offending people right now, I can tell. Uh, I was like, they're lame. I'm not going to read Harry Potter, but they were persistent. They kept on nagging me, and so finally I was like, okay, here's what I'll do. You wore me down. I'll read one Harry Potter book. I'll read the first one, and then I tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to hand it back to you, say that was lame, and I won't read any of the others. Well, uh, a month later, in all seven books under my belt, I love Harry Potter, okay? Like, still do, guilty pleasure, whatever you call it. Before I'd ever read Harry Potter, though, I, I was a new youth pastor. I, I hadn't read it before. I was a new youth pastor. We were getting ready to go on this mission trip to New Orleans back after the hurricanes hit. This was years ago. And um, we, we have this departure meeting the night before we go. And at the departure meeting, we're kind of talking through the details of the trip, talking through the ground rules, what time we're going to leave, everything like that. And uh, the students aren't paying any attention. And I'm like, well, why aren't you guys paying any attention? I mean, what, what's going on? And one of the students said, hey, well, uh, we're kind of distracted. The last book in the Harry Potter series comes out tonight at midnight. And so we're all talking about how we're going to carpool there. We're going to wait in line at midnight, get the book, and then we're going to read it all throughout the rest of the trip. And I remember kind of having an idea real quick. And so, so a- after that, the next morning, they, they all go that night. They show up. They show up in the morning, and they're super tired because they've stayed up all night reading Harry Potter. And they show up, and we were going over ground rules and everything. And I said, hey, and I know I told you guys that, you know, if the ground rules, if you, if you break one of the major ground rules, like there will be a measure of discipline. We might even have to send you home. But, but I, I'm changing that up, Okay. Last night, I got on Wikipedia and found out how Harry Potter ends, and if anyone breaks the ground rule, I'll just spoil the ending of Harry Potter for you and ruin 10 years of your childhood altogether like that. And it, I mean, it was the best idea ever because immediately the students were like angels, okay? They were perfect. They were like, Jesse, what can I do to help? How can I help you, you know? And the whole trip went just perfectly until the last day. And the last day, there are these two senior boys, and what we told them is we told everybody, okay, we're getting ready to leave, so we need you to make sure that you get your bunks clean, you got to have the whole room clean, you got to have all your stuff kind of uh, packed up together. And um, I, I remember going back to the dorms, and they had run out before they had ever done anything, and they ran out with uh, broomsticks and a ball, and I was like, what are you guys doing? They're like, we're going out to play Quidditch. Which, if you don't know Harry Potter, is a Harry Potter game in which you ride around on a broomstick and throw a ball back and forth together. So they're going out to play Quidditch. I was like, okay. And I went into the room, and it's a wreck. It's a wreck. And I remember having this moment like, oh, no. Like, I might actually have to ruin Harry Potter for these kids. I didn't think I was going to have to, but now i got to follow through with my word. What do, what do I do? And I remember going in and sitting on their bed, and I kind of have this tension because I'm not sure like, what I'm going to do. And they come in, and I'm kind of giving them a chance to kind of say, hey, we're, I'm sorry, we were wrong. And I said, guys, I thought I told you that you had to have everything clean and your bags packed before you went out and did anything else. And one of them says to me, he says, well, we packed it all up and clean, but some other kids must have come in and you know, messed it all up. And in that moment, I was like, here we go, here we go. And I said, Harry Potter lets Voldemort kill him. Then Harry Potter comes back to life and defeats Voldemort forever. <laughs> One of the kids goes like this. He puts his, head on his, his hands on his head and he goes, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. You wouldn't say that, you wouldn't say that. And 
You want to know what the other kid did? He cried. Because he knew I would do that. He knew I would do that. And then, so the whole time, like, I, I was sitting there, and then I felt bad because I had this kid crying. And so I walked over to him, and I was like, man, I, Jeff, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have done that. It, it, it's all going to be okay, buddy. Ron and Hermione get married. <laughs> I didn't feel too bad anymore. I mean, they're 18-year-old grown men, okay? This is for their own good, okay? And here's the thing. If you're upset about me spoiling the end of Harry Potter, I have this rule. If, if, if a, a book or a movie's over two years old, you're free to spoil it, okay? Bruce Willis, The Sixth Sense, he's dead the whole time, all right? You're welcome. There you go. Here's what all of that has to do with, with the Bible, okay? Because I promise you there's a point. One of the hardest things about the Bible, if you've spent any time going to church before, you've heard a lot of the stories. We've heard a lot of these Bible stories, and you know how they end. And so what happens is these Bible stories, we filter everything that happens in the Bible story through what happens at the end. And, but every story that we focus on, okay, it, it has a lot of tension. It has a lot of problems for the person in the story. It's got a lot of pain that this, these people are going to go through. But to us, these stories, they're all just filtered through what we know about the end of the story. In the end, everything's going to work out okay. And so these stories have been spoiled for us. And one instance, a perfect instance, is Joseph. And we're going to look at his life today. But Joseph, throughout his life, you're going to see he goes through a lot. But if we've heard this story just one time before, everything that Joseph goes through, goes in our minds, goes through this filter of a verse that all of us have heard before, many of us have heard before in Genesis 50, verse 20. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph, at the end of everything, can look at the people that did wrong to him and say, hey, it's all okay. God worked this out for good. And so we read this story, and no matter what Joseph goes through, in the back of our mind, we're, we're thinking, well, I, this is really hard. This is really tough. But in the end, it's all going to be worth it, and Joseph is going to be okay. But here's the thing. That's not how life works. You know, that's not how our lives work. And when you're in the middle of something that's difficult or frustrating or hard or painful, it, it, do you just sit back and say, well, this is all just going to work out in the end? No, like we don't say that because we don't know if it is going to work out in the end. I mean, we don't know how, how it even could work out in the end. All we know is what's happening then, right then, and it's real life pain, real life uncertainty, real life tension. And these stories that we're walking through, these stories of Bible people, they're true stories. They're not made up. They're not in the imagination. They're real people, real events, real time in history. And what that means is that they experienced life the same way that we experienced life. Joseph didn't know that his life was all going to work out in the end. He experienced his life the same way that we would. So with all that said, I want to dive into the life of Joseph. You can read the story for yourself in Genesis chapters 37 through 51. It's 15 chapters. We're going to kind of hit the high points and see what God's up to in the grand narrative of the story today. And to help, we have the pinnacle of church technology right here, the felt board. Who remembers felt board from like church Sunday school? Okay, there are plenty of us, you know. We talked about bringing it back, you know. We won't, we'll tell every Bible story on this. I remember sitting in Bible class. I remember even teaching kids using a felt board. And so to start out, we have Joseph right here. And that is our, our first person of our story. And that, that right there is Joseph. And one of the first things that we learn about Joseph is that he's his father's favorite son. Joseph's his father's favorite son, and his father, Jacob, he, he should have known better. He's seen sibling rivalry. He's seen that it never goes well. But at the same time, Jacob decides that he's actually, uh, he's going to have a favorite. And not only that, but he's going to publicize who his favorite son is. Okay, and so he gives, uh, he gives Joseph this fabulous looking coat right here. Just look at that. 
Don't you wish you could pull that, that coat off right there? I, I mean, I, I do. So he gives him a coat. There's nothing smarter than telling a 17-year-old that they're more important than everyone else, right? Like, that's just wise on, on Jacob's part. But that's what he does. In Genesis 37-2, it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, he was pastoring the flock with his brothers. And all of his brothers are older than him. It said he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So the first thing we learned about Joseph is that Joseph is a snitch. And who likes a snitch? Nobody likes a snitch, okay? And then Joseph starts having these dreams. And he has uh, these dreams where he and his brothers, they're all binding um, wheat together. And his wheat sheaf stands straight up. And all of his brothers' sheaves bowed straight down to him. And we don't know if Joseph's gotten into the mushrooms or what. Okay, what's happening here? But at the same time, it's one thing to have this dream. It's, a, it's another thing completely to tell your brothers about it. Okay, he actually tells his brother, he goes up to his brothers and he says this, listen to this dream that I had. Listen to the dream that I had. I'm not sure if he's just reckless, dumb, complete lack of self-awareness, but spoiler alert, his brothers do not take that very well. And then Joseph, he has another dream. It says, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they all bow down to me. The universe paid homage to me. Okay, do you think Joseph is a little bit narcissistic? Just a a little bit. And again, he he tells his family, and again, his brothers are not happy about it. They can't, but they know in the moment, they can't do anything to daddy's favor. There's nothing that they can do. And from this point on, Joseph doesn't work in the fields anymore, probably because he doesn't want to get his fancy coat dirty. And so his father will send him out to check on his brothers and bring back a report. This is like the HR representative coming out from corporate, coming out to do quality control. Okay, that's what's happening. And they they see him from a distance and they make a plan to kill him. And that might seem a little bit harsh, but at the same time, can you blame them? I mean, they're out here, you've got this entitled, hallucinating, daddy's favorite, still not made it through puberty yet boy, who thinks he's better than them, and finally, their dad isn't there to save him. I mean, finally, dad's not there to save him, but for one reason, one of his brothers intervenes, says, hey, don't kill him, just throw him into this pit, because this brother was planning to come and rescue him later, so they take off his coat, and they throw him into a pit. That's where comes up our next picture right here. This is brothers throwing him into a pit, and one brother is really excited about it right here, isn't he? He's just, he's just super excited about that. So, so that's what they do. And then Genesis 37, verse 26 says this, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, he's our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So we're going to take the brothers down right here, and we're going to put Joseph back up. Joseph goes to Egypt. And here's what happened. Joseph goes to Egypt. The brothers take the road. They cover it in the blood of a goat. They take it to their dad saying, hey, Joseph's been slaughtered by some wild animal. And Jacob goes into intense mourning. And at this point, you just got to wonder what Joseph's thinking. Because all his life, he'd been the favorite, right? All his life, he'd been the favorite. He had these dreams, these dreams that God had given him about how he was going to be so great that his brothers and even his parents were going to bow down to him. But now his brothers turn on him, his dad thinks that he's dead, and he's a slave, and there's no hope of anything changing. So the question I want to ask you is, what do you do when God doesn't live up to your expectations? I think it's a place that we've all been, been in from time to time. God, I, I thought I'd be married by now. 
Okay, God, I, I thought that if I did what you said, then you would help me get that job. God, I thought if we started going to church together, then my husband wouldn't walk out on us. And whether it's cancer or infertility or job loss or miscarriage or unfaithfulness or so many other things that they put us between the way things are and the way that we thought that they would be. And Joseph had all these same expectations with his life, how life would work out if God was with him. And at this point, in reality, things are headed in the complete opposite direction. So how do we handle the disappointment of God not living up to our expectations? I think that we can learn a lot from the life of Joseph today. Here's what happens next. Genesis 37, 36 said, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Remember that right there. So Joseph goes into the service of Potiphar, who's like a general of Egypt's army, and he's one of the, the servants in Potiphar's house. And Genesis 39.2 said, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So Joseph was so successful at everything that he did that, fear, that, that Potiphar put him in charge of literally everything in the house. And you just got to wonder, why, why is Joseph working so hard? Okay? I mean, this is where us knowing how this story ended kind of casts a shadow over the way that we read the story. Because we know that in the end, Joseph's going to be second in command over all of Egypt. But Joseph doesn't know that. At this point, the best Joseph can, can hope for is that he dies a really old slave in Potiphar's house. So he's not working towards anything other than what he currently has. And I think this is really important. He still gives it his best effort. He still tries his best let me ask you, when you're disappointed, when life isn't working out the way you thought it would, when you're stuck and it seems like there's no hope of anything changing, how do you respond? Because I think a, a lot of times when, when life's not going how we want, God's not living up to our expectations, our, our tendency is to just give up. God, if you're not going to change this, then what's the point of even trying anymore? I mean, if I was Joseph, I would have just done the minimum and stayed off the radar. But from Joseph, we see a man with broken dreams. We see a man with a hopeless future still giving his best effort in obscurity. And finally, Joseph gets on someone's radar. And this is where the story gets good, right? He gets on somebody's radar, and it says, it says this in Genesis 39.7. It said, Then after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. And here's the thing, they have to make these for children, and I think that's the best felt art of a woman saying, lie with me, than I've ever seen. You know what I'm saying? Like, that right there makes complete sense. And so, but, but, but here's what happened. You're thinking, all right, now if I'm Joseph, I've been thrown in the pit and left for dead and sold as a slave and spent years as a servant to Potiphar. Like, if that's me, I'm like, it is about time something went my way right? It is about time something happened because God, God is surely not thinking about me. I'm stuck here as a slave, and if God's not thinking about me, then I'm not thinking about him, and I'm going to get mine while the getting's good, okay? Finally, I have a chance for something to go right for me. And I think for myself personally, the times that I'm the most susceptible to personal temptation are the times that I'm disappointed, you see, I thought something was going to work out a certain way, whether it's marriage or work or, or family, whatever. And when it doesn't work out the way that I thought that it would or the way that I shot, thought that it should, I, when I'm disappointed, I'm less likely to trust that God's going to provide for me. And so what my temptation is to take what's right out in front of me, even though it's not what God says is best. That's what happens when I'm disappointed. And when I look at Joseph and I think about the level of temptation that he's facing right here, I'm so blown away by his response. It's in Genesis 39, verse 8. 
said, but Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master, he's got no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And, she, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he wouldn't listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. I mean, how does Joseph keep a, a, a clear head like that? He's 18 years old. He's been sold out. He's been made a slave, and he doesn't give in. He doesn't rationalize it and say, well, well, this situation is different. He doesn't say something like, well, God understands where I'm coming from. He doesn't say, if I don't do this, then my life's going to get a lot more complicated. No, Joseph realizes something. He realizes, he remembers that no matter what the situation, sleeping with somebody he's not married to, it's not just a sin against Potiphar, Potiphar's wife's husband. It's not just a sin against Potiphar. He says it's a sin against God. And what he knew is that this was cheapening one of God's good gifts, treating it as something casual when in reality it's something spiritual. And, and Joseph says this when, when nobody else is around. I mean, c compare that with Samson, who Scott talked about last week. Samson, what was his goal? His goal was to just get away with whatever he could. And Joseph, we see Joseph not trying to get away with it, but Joseph's trying to honor God and be a man of integrity. And then Genesis 39, verse 11 said, But one day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And so here we go. She grabs his garment. She holds it like this. And I, I, that, that's just not really accurate right there. So we thought this is probably what a slave running away without his robe would look like right there. You know, and so we'll make it Joseph for you right there. That's probably more of what it looks like. And, and, and here's what I would be thinking if I'm, if I'm Joseph. I'm like, God, okay. God, I, I honored you. I didn't give in. Okay, I did the right thing. I resisted her. I didn't sin against you. And God says, I did the right thing. Now, now it's your turn to do the right thing. And, and you'll take care of me. And, and Potiphar's wife will stay quiet, okay? Or better yet, she'll run after me and get run over by a camel, okay? I did the right thing. Now it's your turn. But instead, if you know the story, Potiphar's wife gets embarrassed. She accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. She holds up his coat as evidence. And Genesis 39, 20 said, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now remember that. It said, And Joseph was there in prison. So here we go. We'll take Joseph, Potiphar's wife off. We'll put in, put up real Joseph up there. I don't want any of the people to stumble, you know, as we look at naked Joseph up there. And so anyways, um, that is, that's happening, and even in prison, so Joseph right there in prison, but even in prison, we're going to see the, the same thing play out that happened in, in Potiphar's house. Genesis 39, 21 said, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, if God's showing Joseph his steadfast love, couldn't God do better than just making Joseph the head prisoner of the prison, right? I mean, Joseph is still a prisoner. But even in prison, it seems like God's up to something. And a couple of years later, Joseph meets some guys who have just been thrown into prison. 
One of them is the cupbearer for the king, and the other one is his baker. We're not sure really which one is, is which, but, but these guys, they come in, and, and we're not sure what they did to, to get into prison. We're not sure if they gave the king really bad food poisoning or what, but one day, they're in jail, and they do not look well. And in Genesis 40, verse 7, said, So Joseph asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? Now, I want to take a quick time out and be real about this. If you're in Joseph's place, okay, you've gone from being the favorite to a pit to being a slave to now you're in prison. Why are you showing compassion on other people who up until a couple, a couple days ago were living in the palace with Pharaoh? Why are you showing compassion on them? I mean, they haven't been through even close to what Joseph has been through, and yet here he is asking them why their faces are downcast. And I know when things aren't going well for me, the first thing I lose is my sense of compassion. I'm not a very compassionate person to begin with. You know, big surprise, right, Jesse? You ruined Harry Potter for some children and really ruined their childhood. But when things aren't going the way that I want them to go, it's like I lose any sense of compassion. And when I'm disappointed, life's not measuring up to my expectations, I get less caring, I get less compassionate because all I'm thinking about is how bad things are for me. What we see with Joseph is we see when, even when life isn't going how he planned, in the middle of a prison, he still doesn't let his disappointment cloud out his compassion. He doesn't walk in there and try to one-up the guys and say, well, you think it's bad for you. Let me tell you what happened to me. No, what Joseph does is he cares, he listens, he tries to understand, and he does his best to help. And these guys told him about the dreams they had, and Joseph, he knows a little bit something about dreams, and he tells the cupbearer, hey, good news. In, in, in three days, Pharaoh, he's going to let you out, and he's going to restore you to your position. And when he does that, just remember to tell him about me. And then he tells the baker, well, there's some good news and some bad news. The good news is the cupbearer is going to get out and get his job back, and the bad news is that you are going to die. And so that's what kind of happens. The, the baker is executed, and the cupbearer is restored. And so these guys are, are out of jail, and now Joseph's there alone. And Genesis 40, 23 says this, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And this seems like it was Joseph's one chance. The cupbearer forgets about him. And if I'm Joseph, I'm, I'm thinking that it's not just the cupbearer that forgot about me, Right? At this point, it seems like God's the one that forgot about me. And just when God has the perfect opportunity to reward me for my faithfulness, he forgets about me. And I wonder if Joseph, I just wonder if it was me, I'm thinking I, I should have just slept with Potiphar's wife and none of this would have ever happened. I wonder if Joseph has that thought. Now look at chapter 41. Verse 1 says, after two whole years. We're not talking about you know, two days, two weeks, two months. We're talking about two whole years of, of Joseph being in prison for something that he didn't do. I want you to real quick imagine the last two years of your life. Do your best to imagine the last two years of your life. And remember, if you, and think if you spent that entire time feeling forgotten by God and your situation never showing any signs of getting better. How tempting would it have been for Joseph to get bitter? But Pharaoh starts having these dreams, and so we're going to put Pharaoh up here. Pharaoh starts having these dreams like the kids talked about. In Pharaoh's dreams, he has these dreams about uh, seven really fat, healthy cows and then seven thin cows. And then he has these, uh, these dreams about seven really healthy ears of wheat and then seven uh, really, really torn down ears of wheat. And, and he's troubled by these dreams. And so Genesis 41.8 said, So in the morning, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. 
And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And then the stupid cupbearer, he finally remembers. He's like, Pharaoh, I know a guy. Okay, let me go get a guy. And they go get Joseph. And they bring Joseph in front of Pharaoh. And, Pharaoh, and Joseph interprets the dreams. He says, okay, there's going to be seven years of abundant crops. But after that, there's going to be seven years of famine. So what you want to do is you want to save up during those seven years of abundance so you have enough. And you'd be really wise to get somebody to run that whole project for you. And Genesis 41, 37 says this, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? I want us to stop right there. Things are finally about to go Joseph's way. I want to ask you, is this the first time that God has been with Joseph? No. As a slave, Genesis 32.2 says, And the Lord was with Joseph. As a prisoner, Genesis 39.21, But the Lord was with Joseph, and now in the palace. And I think it's important for us to remember, God was just as present in the prison as he was in the palace. And just because we can't see what God is doing doesn't mean that he isn't doing something. God was with Joseph all along, whether you realize it or not. And then uh, Genesis 41, 39 says, But then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we're going to put up Egyptian Joseph right here. We're going to take down servant Joseph. Uh, Egyptian Joseph kind of looks like a woman, doesn't he? You know, I'm not sure that maybe that's how they, they dress back in Egypt. We're not, not really sure. Finally, something goes Joseph's way. Finally, it goes his way. But how old's Joseph now? He's 30. And how old was he when he got thrown into that pit? 17. There are 13 years in between the time that he was first thrown into a pit and the time that he gets restored. It, it didn't happen in a couple months. It was multiple years. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of everything, the people, the food, the leaders, the armies, everything. And, and, and let me just ask you, if Joseph was going to be in charge of the army, okay, if Joseph was going to be in charge of the Pharaoh's guard, where would be the best place for him to be developed? Maybe in the house of the captain of Pharaoh's guard, Right? And okay, how about this? If Joseph was going to need to know about how to work the political system and lead all the officials, where would be the best place for him to learn a lot from a lot of different people who are really close to the king? Maybe the king's prison, where all day probably what they're talking about is the king and the kingdom. You see, what had happened through these years is that Joseph was being prepared for what God had in mind all along. Joseph probably didn't see it that way. He probably wondered if God was punishing him for being so arrogant when he was younger. But what Joseph might have seen as punishment, God was using as preparation. God had been preparing Joseph all along. But even when Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt, he still has this unfulfilled dream. I don't know if he even remembered the dream anymore, but he starts leading the operation of saving up enough grain before the famine. And again, Joseph does a great job, like he has done every time before, so much so that when the famine hits, it said that Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And they said, moreover, all the earth came to, Joseph, to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. And guess who comes calling? Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob, Joseph's father, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? 
And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. And so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And so we're going to take a Pharaoh down. We're going to put Joseph's brothers up. But what happens is when Joseph sees his brothers, he immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him because it's been 20 years and he's cross-dressing now. And so they, they don't really know what to do with this at this time. And this is where, for, for those of us who, who've heard the story before and we know how it ends, we don't have an accurate idea of how this feels in the moment, okay? This is the guy that's been through 13 years of hell, and these are the 10 men that are directly responsible for it. Now he's the second most powerful man in the world. And you got to think, if, if we're watching this in a movie, this is the time where we're watching a movie for the first time, we're like, get him, Joseph, you know? Like, this is the time where we want Joseph to be like, what's up, fellas? You remember me? No, Joseph, yeah, that's right, that Joseph, the one you threw into a pit. You want to know something? Payback is a bear, you know, whatever. I'm not sure what he would say. He's in the Bible. He wouldn't say anything bad right there. But that's what, that's what we would expect, right? If we're watching this story in a movie, we expect that Joseph takes his revenge right there. But that's not what happens. I mean, in a real, true life story with Joseph's brothers at his total mercy, he's got compassion on him. And sure, if you've read the story before, he messes with them a bit beforehand, you know, just to make sure that they're really sorry. But I think what he's trying to do is he's just trying to, to figure out how he can process everything. And finally, he says this. It says, so Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 45, verse 4, he says, come near to me, please. They came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five more years which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. See, Joseph is finally starting to understand. God was doing something even when he couldn't see what God was doing. And just like Scott talked about last week, God was able to use their sinful actions to, uh, to accomplish good and Joseph brings his entire family up to Egypt. He's reunited with his father and his mother and all of his brothers. And if, if, you have a, a ver, if you have a Bible, this verse that I'm about to read should be underlined. If you don't have a Bible, go grab one from the back just so that you can underline it. Because this is what Joseph says after 13 years of hell. It's Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, you all meant this for evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. I think that right there, out of all the, the stories that we've been talking about the last four weeks, that might be the hardest story for us to really believe deep down. Because what do we do when God doesn't live up to our expectations? I want you to take a second and think about those moments. To use language from the story of Joseph, those bottom of the pit, life got worse even though you did the right thing in a prison and there's no hope of anything changing. Those moments. Those moments where you felt forgotten, those moments that you felt like either God wasn't there or even worse, he was there, but he just didn't care. Those moments that you look at and you just can't understand how anything good could come out of that. And I wonder, could we, in light of those things, could we choose to try to believe that God is big enough and strong enough and faithful enough that one day he'll show us what he was doing? 
whether it was here on this earth or it's heaven? And can we try to believe that God has a level of good in mind that's far beyond anything we could see or understand now? Because I think about Joseph, and I think about when he was a kid, the only good that he could dream of was his family bowing down to him. But God had a level of good in mind that was something that Joseph couldn't even comprehend back then, okay? Not ruling his family, but saving his family. And in the process, millions of other people. Not just good for Joseph, but good for others. And you might be sitting there thinking, Jesse, I hear you. I, I hear you, but look at my situation. How could God make good out of this? Don't you think that Joseph felt the same way? I mean, he, he's in the bottom of a well. How could God make good come out of this? Sold out for silver? How is God going to make good come out of this? He's enslaved. He's falsely accused. He's condemned. He's forgotten. There's a famine. How could God make something good come out of this? But throughout Joseph's story, God was up to something. And when we see it all together, throughout it all, it was good. And you know, we could read the story of Joseph, and we could break it down to this principle. Just trust God, just do the right thing, and it might take a while, and it might be really hard, but eventually God will make your dreams come true. But I can't say that, because it's just not true. I mean, I can't say that to a wife whose husband isn't coming back. I can't say that to my friend who may never end up getting married. I can't say that to the couple who will never be able to meet their baby on this side of heaven. I just can't say that. The, the only thing that I can say is look to Jesus. we got to look to Jesus. And there's this time where he's in the middle of a garden and he knows he's going to be killed in a few days. And he prays this. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Translation, God, this is not what I want. God, this is not what I choose. I don't want this to happen. God, make this stop. And then Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus in that moment, Jesus didn't want to go to a, a cross. He didn't want to die. That's not the plan that he would choose. But Jesus trusted that God had a level of good in mind that was far beyond what we could see or understand then. And we see these similarities in the life of Jesus and the life of Joseph. There's a time where Jesus was sweating blood in a garden. How's God going to make good come out of that? Jesus himself was sold out for some silver. How's God going to make good come out of this? He was falsely accused. He was condemned. He was beaten. He was put on a cross. How is God going to make good come out of this? I mean, what was done to Jesus, it was evil. It was sinful. It was awful. But God was doing something good. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare us his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, if God wouldn't even hold back his own son from death for us, why would we doubt that he's holding out on us in other things? And with that one sacrifice, all mankind's sin was paid for. God reconciled all men to himself, and he rose Jesus from the grave, and he appointed him at the right hand of God. And Romans 8 continues. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What's it mean to be more than a conqueror? I mean, to be a conqueror means you meet your enemy on the field of battle and you, and you defeat him. But being more than a conqueror means that you take your enemy captive and you use what once fought against you, what once battled against you, and you use it for your good. 
And our enemies in this life are the circumstances that are as awful and dark and hopeless as they may be. Through Jesus, those circumstances can be used for our good. That's what he says. There's this old preacher named Charles Spurgeon, and one time he said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Throughout our lives, the waves will come, the storms will come, but in the middle of them, there is a God who promises to be with us through it all. And no storm can stop the good that God has planned for you. And that's why we're going to practice communion right now. Because so often we forget that God brings good out of our storms. And so what we do is every once in a while we set aside time to remember a body that was broken, blood that was poured out. We remember the power of God, how he could bring hope from what was hopeless, and he could bring light from what was dark, and he could make good out of what was intended as evil. So in a minute or two, as communion is passed, if you believe in Jesus' sacrifice for our good, then eat the bread, drink the juice, and remember how God was powerful and faithful enough to bring good out of something as horrible and evil as the cross. So let's pray together. God, we remember, we remember what you did right now. And God, as we come to you and we take communion, God, we're going to ask that you help us remember two things. God, number one, God, will you help us remember that you are big enough and strong enough that you can take any evil circumstance that we've ever been in, God, and you can make it good. We might not understand, we might not even see how that's possible right now. But God, you did the same thing with Jesus. And God, that's the second thing we want you to help us remember. We want you to help us remember your son, Jesus who willingly gave himself up for us so that we could be reconnected back to you. God, we're so grateful that you've had a plan throughout history. God, we're so grateful that you have a plan for us. God, as we take communion, will you help us remember that you have good plan for us, even if we can't comprehend it right now. It's better than we can even think of right now. God, we love you. We remember your son, Jesus. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.